Welcome to Thinking Bros. My name is Chris. And I'm Alex. We're your favorite corner store philosophers trying to figure out life one conundrum at a time. And today we're going to completely switch up the formula of the episode. Whoa. Uh, our original idea, but we did steal it from uh, Very Bad Wizards. So we're going to have an opening segment. Then we're going to introduce the topic we're going to, the main topic we're going to talk about. Then we're going to discuss it for a while and then give specific practical applications because that's the goal of the show in in essence so we're going to try to make uh, philosophers sound useful so we're going to actually start with um, a little psychology study from uh, 1964 i believe and it's the bystander effect yeah it's the famous bystander effect you, do, do you want to introduce what it is yeah sure I, I think what prompted a lot of research on it initially or maybe this was just something that um popularized it although it existed before is it was a murder a kitty genovese murder in which the newspapers reported on the next day um that this was a girl that was killed like in, in an, an alley that was quite public in a city and um n like no one reported her death for a while her, her stabbing for a while and people allegedly just walked past and you know nobody did anything and the media had headlines like i don't remember the number like 30 people just walked by a murder victim or like 60 people walked by a murder victim people are horrible and all sorts of implications about human nature and everything and um the you know the psychological concept associated with that is the bystander effect where uh if something happens like a a, a problem comes up you're conflicted between you know reporting or doing something about the event or just walking by and carrying on with your day and the bystander effect is the fact that the more people there are around you the more you're likely to think uh you know someone else will do it i don't have to do it and just walk by yeah and the way the study well actually the specific phenomenon is called uh, diffusion of responsibility makes sense and the way they conclude the study is if people understand the situation, situational forces that can make them hesitate to intervene, they may better overcome them. So this is specifically what we're going to try to do today. And also, did you notice anything while reading this? Sure, but I, I don't know what you're talking about exactly. Right, words, <laughs> sentences, right? But the, the main thing for me was, did you see how more of a storytelling approach old psychology had like qualitative the kind that i like oh how how like the study was readable yeah well first of all it was yeah. readable but then they were saying like okay well you know our our subjects entered then their reactions were such uh one of them said oh no the the person is having a fit right it's like a storytelling approach to psychology i see uh, i, I see, see but, i mean it's sort of like reporting of qualitative variables instead or like or like qualitative stuff instead of numbers exactly because studies now would be like uh the majority did this and the i mean the thing is you have to operationalize behavior right if you're if you want to report empathy yeah you're right though if you want to report empathy now they're going to be like okay empathy is all of this below the list and then they group all this together into empathy but for this it was like oh this is actually quotes from the people um that that, that were in the study which is really interesting and i think yeah, you're right. Make made me feel like um, it was easier to understand the study because 
you know, I could imagine myself there as the researcher, you know, yeah, talking and also, to people. You're wondering the same things as them. It's not like some complex statistics. It's like they're they say, well, look, these people didn't intervene. They're asking why in the pro process of the conclusion of the study, uh, then they're a a giving potential answers. These days, it's just like, well, uh, a significant effect was found on this, this, this. Uh, co copper fields uh, in uncertainty variable was 0 0.8. Like, whatever. <laughs> Psychology lost its heart. <laughs> but um, that's definitely for another time. Now, what's interesting here is I've identified two factors. Maybe you, you saw something else, but essentially everyone didn't want to help, well, didn't decide to help the same way, right? Can you, Men, women. Can you say this, what this exactly was? Because I, I guess I don't really know. Did you just read the discussion too? Yeah. Okay. Well. What do you mean exactly? Well, what was the situation? You didn't say what the study was. Yeah, well, essentially, I think. Uh, some people were were given the task to look at a patient inside a, a hospital room, and then they were, they were, they were also told that from the other side, someone else is watching or something like that. I'm I, probably misrepresenting I, it, but I mean, I, I just read the only the discussion. I may have read this before. I'm I think it's all over audio, and so they have like a mic and and headphones, and um, they're they're yeah they're watching someone else or checking on someone else um, and making sure they're okay or something. And then they hear through the audio that the person is having a fit, whatever a fit is, uh, some a sort of problem. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And it says there that they hesitated between staying on the intercom and leaving, right? Because they have to leave the room and then tell the researchers that something is happening. Well, if they, if they want to. And they're also told either that no one else is watching the patient or listening to the patient or that many other people or some people are checking on the patient. So that's uh, while there were actually none, right? So it's like perceived uh, other people. Right. So the perceived presence of others is, um, is a big factor that makes you kind of diffuse the responsibility. But now from a moral approach, what's interesting is how can you fight this? Because honestly, I'm one to overestimate my moral abilities. Right, like, oh, I was, I would sacrifice my life for, you know, Pakistan or something like that. But, but um, honestly, in this situation, if I saw something on the, something happening like that on the side of the road, I would, I would definitely hesitate, like a lot. And yeah. even I don't, I can't confirm my final decision. It would probably be to walk away really reasonably. So what I've identified here is that what matters and what can, um, can help people actually react is communication and unique ability okay so i think in the uh, the situation that you told that popularized the study people were actually watching from their apartments so they were separated by the glass of their apartments they were just watching on the street i'm, I'm not sure i think people walking by were also no it was popular. i mean it was written but okay but essentially mm. they, they identified it here so essentially it's the same thing it's the perceived like okay these other people are looking at it and therefore i'm assuming somebody called the police i'm assuming somebody's rushing down to help so that's the big thing now here it says that males are more responsible than females for direct interventions that require physical strength yeah for example swimming down to something so this is very interesting because when you perceive that you have a unique ability that others can't share 
you're going to be the one rushing down. And this is what's portrayed, you know, in all the plane scenes, when some, somebody's having a fit, whatever that means, and the doctor rushes down. Well, obviously, everyone's also saying, is there a doctor on board? But the doctor's rushing down and helping the patient. Right. Right. And it, it might seem trivial, but imagine the bystander effect happening in a hospital. Imagine everyone has a packed schedule, and let's say someone who just entered the ER, so it's not anyone's patient, it's not anyone's responsibility. Every doctor is rushing somewhere. Some Somebody like, I don't know, trips and falls quite... quite uh, Badly. Yeah, quite badly in the... Enter, while entering, not the ER, but the uh, emergency room or something. No, that's the same thing. <laughs> what, what's, the, what's the thing where they just enter? Whatever, the waiting room. Reception? Yeah, the reception or whatever. And many doctors are walking by. It's not unimaginable that the doctors are going to go go talk to their cancer patients and before before helping that oh, person i thought you were going the other way okay <laughs> no i'm saying no, none of the doctors have the unique ability because other doctors are watching so everyone could help that person oh I, i'm not sure i'm not sure i'm not sure about unique ability i would say just you know well okay it's also the context the of a hospital and their job is to help but Everyone has packed schedules. Look, I don't want. I wouldn't help. No, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> that's why you're not a doctor. <laughs> not a doctor. But you know, I'm sure we could imagine a thought experiment where exactly the effect that I'm talking about works. Where, well, we all have this specific unique ability. But I, it's also like usually when you have the unique ability, it's also straight straight up your job to do the thing, right? If someone's drowning and you're a lifeguard, lifeguard. You're not going to sit around with your lifeguard buddies and tell yourself, ah, somebody else is going to swim over there. It's also your job. But sure, sure. I would just say it's not like a unique ability. I'd say that the, the reason people don't help just bystanders when they're not sure about what's going on, if they're having a seizure, because most people don't know what, what's going on in a seizure and don't know how to help, you know, and so they do nothing. But if there were 20 doctors around, yeah, it's, but not, again, it's, it's not because of their unique ability. It's just because they have the ability. No, but here the study goes deeper than that because the people even hesitate to call help, right? Because of the diffusion of the responsibility, they don't yeah. even call the help. Yeah. Because that's not a unique ability that they have. So if well, everyone what, what, could what, do it. What unique ability? To call help. Well, it's not because they don't have a unique ability. It's because, you no, know. If, if everyone can do what they're theoretically morally supposed to do, right. they're going to feel re less responsible. That's true. It, in the same way as... Let's say you're a time traveler. Well, this is going to give you a really good thought experiment. You're, let's say you're a time travel and traveler in the 1920s, and you're the only one around with the phone, and another time traveler is a doctor. Are, are you going to feel more compelled to call the doctor in a crowd of, of people watching a person have a seizure? That's a masterful thought experiment. Sure, but I, I think the, the point is not... Look, the, the point more of diffusion of responsibility is not... Uh, and they mentioned this in the study too is for me it's less oh um, other people can do it that that's definitely like a big part of it but I think most of it is like I don't want to seem dumb and kick up a fuss about nothing I think the 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 reason you're uh, you're hesitating like on the side of the road when you're saying you're driving by and you see something on the side of the road is that you don't want to seem dumb right it's like if you're on the playground and something happens and you don't want to be like, oh my god, teacher, whatever. And then 
like someone already told her or like nothing is going on. You don't want to seem dumb, and that's why you don't do it. If you could help, you would help. Yeah, but you can but, call the police, and these people don't, or they don't call the assistant to to help with the person on the audio having a seizure. My point is the fact that men intervene more than the average in situations where only their physical abilities are required shows that when you perceive that you have the the uh, unique ability to help the diffusion of responsibility is doesn't happen to the same extent that's the point i, of I think i think you're mentioning you're, that i think you're pulling unique out of nowhere it's just you have the ability to to, to help well unique just means that you you're kind of aware that statistically people don't have that ability and I, i'm not saying you're the only one in the world i'm just saying that the reason direct intervention often requires skill knowledge or physical power it may involve danger american cultural norms and berkowitz results seem to suggest that males are more responsible than females for this kind of direct intervention why would this be the case and all i'm saying is i'm not saying it's the driving factor all i'm saying is this in this study where it's just listening to an audio and calling or not calling the lady who can help these people know that the person on the other side of the glass has the exact same ability to help therefore they they feel the dif diffusion of uh, responsibility if a, a lifeguard off duty knows they're the best swimmer in the bunch they're gonna feel guiltier after if they didn't help because they know they had the best chances of helping i mean sure i'm not debating ability at all i just don't like unique and i i really don't like the hospital example because a doctor would help if someone falls down and starts bleeding yeah sure because their job it just happens no, to no, be no. their job if, if they have some another patient which is who whose problems are less pressing they're gonna help the, the patient that just because fell down. they're in the context of the hospital and it's their job yeah but you were arguing that they wouldn't help i know it was a bad thought experiment what i'm saying is yeah you need to find somewhere where everyone has a unique ability what i call a unique ability and everyone knows they have it because it's all about perception right it's all about and eh, 40 other people are staring at the glass they all have the same ability as me to rush down the stairs they all have phones so i don't have to do it but if you're superman and you can fly down there and stop the killer you're gonna feel more responsible for that situation that's all i'm saying and in that sense you simply have to just defeat the just being aware of this makes you kind of understand that everyone feels that way and it, you know what in that sense if the bystander effect is a strong effect you have the unique ability to see past the bystander effect and know that in fact while everyone has a phone you're unique in being courageous enough to use it and bypass the embarrassment but let's get to the embarrassment because I do think it's kind of the most important part. Well, the other thing is communication because here they make a distinction between uh, a situation where there's a fire in the building and people are talking. They're like, okay, you know, did everyone evacuate? They're going to shout for danger or whatever. And it seems as though people want to help each other. So here you could manipulate that factor. And let's say you, you see something in the street you can come up to someone and ask, what's going on here? Do you know? And if they don't know, at least you have the confirmation of another human that they don't know. Because the big thing about the embarrassment is 
if you could communicate with at least one other person and understand that they're also not in the know just as much as you, it, it opens up a world of possibility where, okay, if at least one more person, that, uh, if, if I'm not the only one not knowing what's going on here, it's plausible that more, more people uh, don't know. Increasing the bystander effect. Right, I think that's no, no, because the, the it would only be embarrassing to help someone if everyone was in on something. Here's an example. I thought thought about this. Have you ever seen those uh, movies with like kind of hidden cameras being filmed, or the camera is just like out of the perception of the of a, a person who's walking by, and I don't. Know, there's a scene of violence, and the the bystander just enters the movie set and kind of interrupts that because they want to stop the situation. Oh, okay, okay, sure. You know what I'm saying? Sure, sure. So if if you're if you're looking at someone who looks official and who's observing the scene, and you just walk up to them, like for, for example, uh, I was once entering my gym, and there were lights everywhere, cameras, blah blah blah. Instead of just walking into the gym and interrupting the shot, I asked the first person that I saw there sitting on a chair, which you know obviously it was quite obvious that it was a movie set, but in the same way, well, okay, not in the same way, but you get it. Um, I just asked, you know, I whispered, what's going on? And they said, oh, well, we're filming for an, one more hour and a half and you have to come back later. So it's just, I don't think it would in increase the bystander effect to just communicate. So if you break the communication barrier, you're going to feel less embarrassed whatever decision you make because you're, you're going to realize that the other person doesn't know. And if they do oh, know, okay. you'll know yeah. exactly how to act. If they're like, oh, this is a movie set. No, okay, then I, I guess I agree with your thing, but uh, what... What isn't true is that having more people around instantly increases communication. Because the point is that uh, in this study, there weren't people around. You know, there wasn't any communication at Just all. Perception, right? perception of presence and of of watching, and they couldn't communicate. Uh, supposedly, you know, I I'm pretty sure I remember the study right, and that's how it went. But having other people around, why I'm saying it increases the bystander effect, which I'm I'm pretty sure it does, is because there's no communication and there's other people there is there, there was another study on the bystander effect where they were in a waiting room and smoke started to fill the room slowly and you know it could be fire that would be so awkward i'd just be like i just yeah that's that's exactly what happened dude. It, there's smoke slowly filling the room it could be a fire that is going to kill everyone right and and there's other people around that that are in on the on the experiment, right? And there's the subject just sitting there, and people like once again the effect was found. Like some people or most people don't report the fire until there's like like you can't see through the fog. <laughs> um, wow, that's funny. Yeah, wow. and but but the reason is because when you're in public, you know, unless you're like you you sort of don't care and you're in your own world, you know you. You could be like walking around and singing your songs and making everyone uncomfortable, but most people keep up a face in public and like want to seem cool, cool, calm, and collected. And that's how you act in an emergency too. You know, there's there's smoke starting to fill the room. I look at you. Your face is normal. Okay, everything is fine. I look away. My face is normal now. You look at me. My face is normal. Nothing's going on. Everything's fine. Like smoke. It's normal that in a hospital waiting room, smoke is filling the room or something. I, I don't know, some some inference from that. And I, I guess then I agree with you because there's no communication in that case. There's nonverbal communication of 
I don't want to seem like a fool and I don't want to make a scene out of nothing. But if people were actually to talk to each other and be like, do you know what the smoke is? You would be like, no. And we'd be like, okay, then let's figure it out well, together. Be, that'd you know? be a pretty good question. Yeah. And that's what, yeah, that's why extroverts are more moral than, than introverts. <laughs> so it's, it's very interesting. I think if we were to come to recommendations, because I, I do understand how in this day and age specifically, right, with cameras around, blah, 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 just, you know, people, you can see people like filming a tragedy instead of going to help. It, it's even more enhanced. And especially because, you know, imagine someone filming and you having to go and help and intervene. That's going to be documented forever. And if you don't have a unique ability, especially, and you, you're just some guy who wants to help a person having a convulsion and you don't even know what that means, or what it is. Yeah, I wouldn't be inclined to help very much. And especially, you know, with the people, you know, the American dream of being like independent, no one's going to want to help someone, especially in a more ambiguous situation where it's not a medical emergency and just be met with, I can deal with it myself or something like that. Right. Like, um. Imagine a person at a gym having a very wrong form, like a newbie at a, at a gym having a very wrong form, and they're like filming them, themselves. I would never be inclined, even if I have like three years of gym experience, and now I know exactly what's wrong with them, and I know they're going to injure themselves. I'm not going to come up to them. Realistically, that's the truth. So I think the embarrassment is kind of the obvious thing. I think what, what you could do is, as a solution, we can conclude this is one, break the communication barrier. Because as soon as you have the confirmation of one other person that you're not the only one in the, in the, not in the know, it kind of deals with a lot of it. So my recommendation, become more extroverted, uh, change your personality. Yeah, I, well, I, I agree that my advice would have been that I see like way too many people be socially anxious. Like it, it's becoming, it's not becoming cool, but it's, it's becoming mainstream and uh, antisocial social club, right? Yeah, and and commonplace to just be like, oh my god, this is so embarrassing. They gave me the wrong coffee. I can't do anything. It's not like I'm gonna go see the person, which is absolutely ridiculous. And you know what the reason to practice that is? Is emergencies and moments where you actually need it. You develop a. I mean, not even like just the thing you described. Yeah, I I am a victim of this, right? I always yeah. say. Give me a black coffee. They give me with, with milk. Now I've started saying, and probably embarrassingly so, but I'm just done. I'm fed up with it. <laughs> I say, can I have a black coffee? The one without sugar and milk? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I say this every time. And it sounds, yeah, it sounds kind of stupid. Like, okay, is, does this person not think I know what black coffee is? And yes, indeed, I think you don't know what black coffee is. Although you work here and you're getting paid, even though it's minimum wage and you're just trying to <laughs> make ends meet. <laughs> So, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So again, here's my best recommendation. Now let's see how you react to this. Act on what the situation is and not on your interpretation of it, right? Don't say, hey guys, I think there's a fire. Say, is it normal that there's a little bit of smoke coming out? Because usually the rooms I'm in don't get filled with smoke. Or when, when a person is in a stroke or something, you know, you're, you're not a doctor. Obviously, what's embarrassing would be to say, hey, that person is having a stroke and they're just, is there, is there a kind of yoga to, that, that kind of releases pressure or something? <laughs> um, don't give your interpretation. If you're embarrassed, don't give your interpretation. Just give exactly what you see because the senses don't lie. If you see something, say something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think it has to do with Sort of letting go of your ego a bit. Be, yeah, uh, you have to. But yeah. but not even to the extent that you would think. It's not like 
hey, is it normal that there's a person on that roof? That, that's all it takes. It's not like, oh my God, there's a person. He's going to jump. Like, I think no, it, you don't know if he's going to jump. I think maybe it, a movie it, said. It's the difference between like a, a, a high school kid interacting with girls and a and an adult interacting with an adult guy interacting with girls it's like in the first situation you you have an idea of what you're supposed to be like and you're trying to put that idea in front of the girl and and you you you're not real you're awkward and it's not productive ultimately and an adult person is more you know assumes more of you know i am the way i am and if I'm going to have a relationship with this girl, she's going to know eventually the way I am. And so I'm, I might as well just act the way I am. And, and also it's productive because I learn that way. And that's the way you have to approach these situations. It's not I'm supposed to know everything and be ultra cool and cool guys don't look at explosions. And so I'm just going to ignore things. You can be like, oh, this is potentially a danger to my life and I would like to not die. And so uh, let's inquire about it. But even then, like, that's you're even giving the most generous one where it's the room film right, full right. of smoke, like especially practice to help others, right? Because even then, like you're eventually you're gonna get over in some situation of the bystander effect where it your life is also in danger, the the imminent danger is gonna overrun your embarrassment. But in situations where you have have to help others and there are other like another forty people on the street, you're gonna walk away with. A clean conscience and that's dangerous that's right the thing. so just practice to, to break the communication barrier i think and uh, you know just learn that it's normal to talk to people it, yeah it doesn't even seem normal anymore to talk to people like it's so rare i had one guy in in my recent memory that just like we, we had eye contact in one of our classes and he said what did you do this weekend and i was like whoa this guy's a revolutionary uh oh <laughs> Yeah, you know, after the the isolation, I before I used to walk the big around, isolation, the big isolation. But before I used to walk around the park like two hours a day. Everyone said hi. Everyone looked at us in the eyes. Man, yesterday I walked around for two hours. I think one person looked at me and barely nodded. It's it's like going to the U.S. Right? It's it's like the difference between here and the U.S. Yeah, like while you're in the, in the interaction, but breaking the interaction barrier seems impossible anymore. That, that's why you just have to let go of your ego and do it yourself. Because other people probably want the same thing. Yeah, and also... Well, you know what? I feel like it's taking way too long. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Now, a word from our sponsors. Do you like cookies? Let me answer that for you. Yes. Do you like cream? Well, it's like asking if the circumference of the Earth is 40,075 kilometers. It is. Duh. Right? Using new technology... Your two favorite foods are now combined together into your new favorite snack, Oros. Oros, the whole is greater than the sum of two parts. Thank you. So yeah, that's our new sponsor. So, first sponsor, right? Let's get to your yeah, first sponsor. Thank you. Thank you so much. So um, Thank you. Okay, and now uh, we're going to move on to the discussion of the main segment. Today's, sorry, the main segment. Today's writer is Marcus Aurelius. And... Uh, and so we just went through the first chapters of the meditations and highlighted some some quotes that we thought were interesting and perhaps applicable to to real life. And uh, the conclusion of this segment is going to be the conclusion of this segment is going to be us trying to apply you know some of this stoic wisdom to real life, as TikTok claims to do so often. <laughs> so uh, we have book two, chapter one, uh, book two. Point one, I guess. 
When you wake up in the morning, tell yourself, the people I deal with today will be meddling, ungrateful, arrogant, dishonest, jealous, and surly. They are like this because they can't tell good from evil. But I have seen the beauty of good and the ugliness, ugliness of evil, and have recognized that the wrongdoers has a nature related to my own, not of the same blood or birth, but the same mind, and possess, possessing this, a share of the divine. And so none of them can hurt me. No one can implicate me in ugliness, nor can I feel angry at my relative or hate him. We were born to work together like feet, hands, and eyes, like the two rows of teeth, upper and lower. <laughs> to obstruct each other is unnatural. To feel anger at someone, to turn your back on him, these are obstructions. And I, I, th I think this brings up uh, you know, two recurrent themes in this. First of all, the fact that nothing external can affect you. You have the control over, over what affects you. So um, all these dishonest bad people that you meet today, they can't affect you and nothing can get you to turn to ugliness apart from you and your own resentment that you create about the world. And uh, and number two is a, a sort of concept of wholeness, which I think you, you appreciated with your recent initiation and into Buddhism. Yeah, my long-standing Buddhism, yeah. Your lifelong devotion to Buddhism. Yeah. <laughs> um, of, you know, cooperation between people and everything is everything and we should all work together and everything is designed to work together. I think most of all, unless you had more to say, most of all, it's the thing we said in the episode with uh, Phil, and I think there's another quote that it be better captures it, but... <clears throat> the, the wrongdoings of others... If you see Earth as an organism as and this holistic approach and non-individualistic, which we often, you know, forget ourselves in in Western culture, the actions of others are simply nature acting, right? Uh, I gave the example in the Phil episode, the first Phil episode, of the tornado hit hitting your house. Would you ever be able to say that that is unjust? Right. You can't, you can't really spin it as unjust, but the reason we can say that, oh, <clears throat> that person who cut me off in traffic, that is unjust, is because it's, you know, it's acted by a human. And I think there's a productive side to that, where if you call it unjust, then now it's up to correction. Right? I think that laws are useful in that sense, where that person unjustly killed people, therefore we're going to imprison him, and deliver justice and, and that's productive but the other side is you know you, you can definitely have the image of an anxious person just walking around the street thinking the whole world is against them you know you go to your job maybe you have clients and they're rude to you and you don't understand that that's just nature being nature right some people there's a yin to everyone's yang and some people will always be rude that's just their norm uh, episode one we talked about how if someone acts in a certain manner, statistically, it's very plausible that that is the person they are. Bless your soul if you listen to that. Yeah. Uh, actually, a really good episode, but despite the audio. And the, the thing about that is, if you think you're at the center of the world, which Westerners usually push, right? Make yourself, right? Uh, the American dream, uh, get your riches, live in a mansion, isolated from everyone, you're going to also think that others' actions are specifically a reaction to you and the world. And that's 
it's a very mistaken perception. Yeah, and book five, uh, point twenty-five is so other people hurt me. That's their problem. Their characters and actions are not mine. What is done to me is ordained by nature. What I do by my own. That's that's what I meant by the, the point. Yeah, that's exactly it. Ordained exactly. by and, nature. But I think what this bring brings up, particularly, is so other people hurt me. That's their problem, and it is their problem because people that act like this in you know, in human societies where collaboration is key and, you know, a, a key factor of going up in any hierarchy is that people know they can rely on you, that you're, you're, you provide some value to them. And if you're just rude and, and don't help anyone ever, yeah, it's not going to help you. Well, I think, yeah, there are three ways to see this. Either the social response to you being like that, or you're just going to be shunned and not get help from anyone when you need it. Then there's the mental illness part where if you are a normal person and choose to act that way because realistically being mean is, is easier right it's less embarrassing to be the stoic well the like i'm gonna misuse the word stoic but like stoic and indifferent you're gonna feel something unsettling at the at the d depth of your brain and you're always gonna be bothered by that right others mistreating me is their problem their conscience is gonna take care of all the punishment they need to have and why I said mental illness is because, well, unless they're mentally ill, of course, if you're a psychopath, they're not going to care, but that's a very small percentage of the population. Yeah. And also there's another thing. I forgot. Right, right. Lack of self-awareness. Where people have not questioned themselves enough and think that it's the norm or that's just them being them, right? And I think there's a balance to... You know, there's a sliding scale of acceptable values of uh, of disagreeableness or meanness or whatever. But realistically, you will find that you're not going to be very liked by the world. And eventually, you're probably going to be pushed toward that, that interval where it's acceptable eventually. No matter your lack of self-awareness. At some point, you can be like at one extreme and think, you know what, that's just me. I, whatever. And you're going to lose, 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 lose. And eventually, you're going to wake up and say, well, look. Maybe I need more. It's like uh, introverts, right? I'm, I'm just so cool, man. Uh, I, my creative process is just closing my door with a lock, putting a hoodie on. I'm inside, but I still put the hood on, and I take a pen and just I create beauty. You're 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 just timid, okay? What's what's your problem with introverts today? Well, my problem is you know, let, let me let me be generous to Freud's accuracy. I hate what I fear to become, and realistically i was that guy and i thought oh you know that's just me, be, me being me and i'm so cool for being introverted you know i've never did the capital sin of buying anti-social social club merch but it's still something i related to and i i definitely considered it which already kind of i deserve severe punishment for you, you're against pathological introvert well i think there's productive introvert well if if, if it's again, necessary you're just yeah. at the bottom of the acceptable scale if you're a productive introvert right it enters into my definition i just think i know a lot of people what do you mean you're you're at the bottom of the acceptable scale it, introversion introversion is the word introversion has nothing to do with well it is a separate scale than agreeableness or disagreeableness it's just being comfortable or not comfortable around other people i know and there's statistically proven benefits to being higher on that specific scale Sure. Sure, but it... Okay, yeah. 
I just remember an episode uh, from end of high school that I was trying really to be cool. And I came up to a group of people, part of which I knew. And I, I was again, I was trying to be cool. So I came in with a lot of energy in a joking manner, like, haha, I'm going to entertain you guys. And it worked for some. And then there's a girl who stopped, well, who I met for the first time there and didn't talk to me since. And then I asked her friend what, what, what's, what was going on. And she said, uh, you just had too much energy for her. And she was like one of those who, uh, who were the hood up inside. And yeah, that just bothered me. And it specifically bothered me, not because she was so cool and I wanted to be her friend. She's an introvert. I, did, I don't want her. But because in the past, I know I was that. And I also thought it was cool. And, and that's kind of brought up, like brought back up the insecurity of, uh, I wish I could tell you how not cool you are. 214. Aurelius 214. Aurelius 214. <laughs> Even if you're going to live 3,000 more years or 10 times that, remember, you cannot lose another life than the one you're living now or live another one than the one you're losing. The longest amounts to the same as the shortest. The present is the same for everyone. Its loss is the same for everyone. And it should be clear that a brief instant is all that is lost. For you can't lose either the past or the future. How could you lose what you don't have? Remember two things. That everything has always been the same and keeps reoccurring. And it makes no difference whether you see the same things reoccur in 100 years or 200. Or in an infinite period. That the, two. That the longest lived and those who will die soonest lose the same thing. The present is all they can give up. Since that is all you have. And what you do not have, you cannot lose. I mean, wow. This, this is what makes me like Marcus Aurelius. First of all, there's the part some may not agree with, which is the cyclical nature of life. Every day is the same. Okay? You think you wore something different? What's the real difference between what you wore? The cotton blend? It's the same thing. You met new people? Okay. What did they provide? Words to you? Is, is that important to you? I think there's another quote, you may remember it because you read it more recently, where it's like, or, or maybe I imagined this, you have one day to live, what are you going to do? And you're going to be like, oh, well, I'm going to, you know, reunite with my relatives, I'm going to go and do all my bucket list things, blah, 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 and then he just says like, okay, now turn that into 60 years and go do those the, things. I was looking for that quote right now, actually, but I can recount it from memory, I think. It, it, it's something like, imagine the gods told you you were going to die tomorrow or the day after or the day after. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what it was. It's so good. Unless you were a complete coward, you would not kick up a fuss about exactly when it is. <laughs> now realize that the difference between tomorrow and 20 years from now is not that big. So, I mean, genius, right? Yeah, that, that's very, very insightful. I think we were talking about this like when we first got into philosophy and talking together, we're like walking in, in the city we're going to a restaurant with our parents, I think, and we were talking about this. It's like, we were all hype, hype about, like, we have to live our life as if, um, if, if my death was announced in a week, I would be doing the same things I'm doing right now. And you were like, and I think I am. You said that. <laughs> and I remember that, which, uh, you know, that's good for you that you thought that. Um, yeah, thoughts? Yeah, yeah, I mean... I think it's so much more powerful than the kind of Instagrammable quote of live every day as though it was your last. And I think it's one of the objection points I have of 
popularizing stoicism to 16-year-old kids because they, they all think it's just TikTok quotes with associated with cool music and it's their kind of 3 a.m. inspiration type thing mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. it must be so much more, right? You have to internalize it for real and realize everything that it means. And thought experiments such as the what if the gods told you that you died tomorrow or the day after are so much more powerful than just hearing you should live every day as though you're your last. Because that is what I call just giving the conclusion. Whereas Marcus Aurelius here in very few sentences gives you the premises on which you would come up to such a conclusion. And that's how you internalize things. And that was my, you know, before the discussion with Phil and maybe a little bit after too. That's my biggest objection with religion, right? It's just a book full of, well, not, it's not even a book full of conclusions. It's just sometimes presented that way. Yeah, well, uh, I definitely agree that, you know, giving the conclusion, it sounds, it sounds right. It, it ticks something in your, in your brain where it's satisfying and, and sounds good. And it's commonplace now to say stuff like that. But I think this is like a prime uh, mental experiment. What, what do you call them? Thought experiment. Thought experiments. It, where you, you, you go through the motions as he says the quote. It's... Uh, 447 for those wondering aurelius 447 where you, you can imagine okay what, what what how would i feel if gods announced my death tomorrow or the day after and is it cowardly to kick up a fuss about whether it's tomorrow or the day after what would i really be doing and then it's the the punchline is the the difference between two days between two days and 20 years is not that big which that's debatable you know, so some people but would attack like, that. But. Just take the perspective of, okay, you're going to die tomorrow or the day after. Okay, well, the day after is double that. Well, imagine that's the difference between 10 years and 20 years, right? Just perspective-wise, that's double something, which is, which, yeah, I mean, it does put it in perspective. I, I understand maybe it could be better be phrased, but also, I, I do think we're both out of that phase, but I definitely was in that phase where, well, actually, no, I never had a fear of death phase, but some people actually philosophically fear death and i think this can help them the most again you you have to internalize it that's the thing people are like live your life to the fullest or some stuff like that that doesn't mean anything un unless you go through the process of okay do you realize that you're wasting the thing that you fear to lose through death by fearing death right the anxiety of the fear of death is the very thing that is making you waste all that time that you believe to be precious. Well, how precious precious is it if you're living with a constant anxiety? So, ironically, you're creating your own problem. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. And what I, what I found throughout also is that some of these insights are very uh, therapy rem reminiscent. Of some insights that that are in this book are sort of the the conclusions and the ultimate you know the, the ultimate solutions of some of forms of therapy nowadays. Uh, where the quotes we just read could be related to humanistic therapy, where the goal is to, you know, live in the present and live moment to moment, not get lost uh, in the past, like Freud, or uh, not not think about the future too much and not obsess about all those things because truly they they don't exist. If if 
you know, then we can get into an argument about what exists. But if you were to make an argument about what exists, the present would, would be the strongest case, I think. The past is just, you know, stored somewhere in your brain. A reconstruction of your memories, a perception so flawed. Not, not even true. Yeah. You know, what, what's true is the experiences you're having right now, what's in front of you, the, the, the things you're living through right now. And, and that's the only thing you can experience truly. And the future, you know, you can't predict. The only thing that exists is now. Yeah, it's a very Buddhist principle as well. Just seeing time as a part, as a sequence of non-connected moments, and you must, you know, exploit the present for what it is. It's pretty powerful. I'm think, pretty sure we can do an episode on, well, a main segment on Buddhism as well. Uh, two seventeen. I think you'd like to read this one. Human life <laughs> duration momentary <laughs> nature changeable perception dim condition of the body decaying soul spinning around fortune unpredictable lasting fame uncertain sum up the body and its parts are a river the soul a dream and mist life is warfare and a journey far from home lasting reputation as oblivion then what can guide us only philosophy which means Making sure that the power within stays safe and free from assault, superior to pleasure and pain, doing nothing randomly or dishonestly and with imposture. Not dependent on anyone else's doing something or not doing it. And making sure that it accepts what happens, what it is dealt as coming from the same place it came from. And above all, that it accepts death in a cheerful spirit and nothing but the dissolution of elements from which each living thing is composed. If it doesn't hurt the individual element to change continually in one to, into one another, why are people afraid all of all of them changing and separating? It's a natural thing, and nothing natural is evil. Yeah, let's unpack this. I think let me let me go back to this. Superior to pleasure and nothing, doing nothing randomly or dishonestly and with pleasure, not dependent on anyone else's doing and uh, and making sure that it accepts, and making sure that it accepts what happens and what is. It is dealt as coming from the same place it came from. Accepts what happens and accepts what it is dealt as coming from the same place it came from. Is that not interesting for uh, kind of judgments in your interaction with other people and and the wait? What is it? The soul. Something with the soul. The power within stays safe and free from assault. And that's that's the logos, though. It accepts what happens when it's. Uh, it's talking about the logos. The, the way I interpret it is. Is it not that person cut me off in traffic and that comes from kind of their soul? And it's it wasn't done to affect my soul kind of thing? Is that what you, it is? In, in our notes, you wrote Logos... Definition. Yeah, yeah, question mark. And I think Logos is sort of... I mean, it's sort of like the Stoic god, let's say. Not exactly, but... Because I thought it was purpose, I thought it was intelligence, I thought there was reason, I thought it was... Reason, yeah. Okay. But but it, it's it's sort of God in the sense that it's the universal mind from which everything comes. Let's say the, the, the organizing principle of the universe, the reason there's not disorder. But also, we're sort of God-like in the sense that we have reason, we organize things, and, and it's rationality also. Uh, and somewhere it said... Uh, the eternal and unchanging truth uh, there for those who seek it. Uh, that's the logos. Yeah, I think uh, making sure that it accepts what happens and 
deal uh, and what is and what it is dealt as coming from the same place it came from i think that's that's where it comes from it's your rationality should accept all other things and he goes on more you know later in the quote about everything being everything else is everything comes from the same place everything comes from the logos and if it happens it must have happened it, there there was no other choice but yeah i i just like the the first part of that quote the like duration momentary nature changeable is it it sounds so like literary and these these notes the meditations of marcus aurelius he wrote for himself it was his like journal that he wrote at night of like oh i'm going to bed now let let me write these things as to guide my life or something he never meant for this to be published and it's written so artistically i, I think it's it's amazing but it's also the type of thoughts one would have it's very plausible right like i, I would be like that like table stable <laughs> chair falling <laughs> so back yeah broken. I, th I think i noted this because soul spinning around and Marcus Aurelius is a pretty concrete person, right? He's like, okay, don't let other people's judgments affect you because it is only your perception of their, their judgments that can affect you emotionally. Just focus on that. But then, soul spinning around. What, what does that really mean? Does, does that just play into it more? Because it seems with literary intentions, because it seems so metaphorical and not like, the the actual how do you say it? the usefulness of that statement doesn't seem very palpable so i think maybe it just plays into the ever-changing nature of things maybe it's just that probably yeah i i just thought you'd like it because then what can guide us only philosophy yeah i wouldn't say it, this specific quote makes a strong case for that point specifically because also he doesn't develop well i guess yeah the, the, par the paragraph at the end is kind of a oh oh my, my mo the most interesting thing for me was Nothing natural is evil. Right. But that's the thing a big, is... That's a big point. In, every in person is a manifestation stuff. of the Logos. Yes. So does evil not exist to that extent? Evil doesn't exist for him. I mean, yeah, that's that's where you would oppose to Marcus Aurelius, I think. It's just that everything is nature. Nature, you know, dictates everything. And so there's, there can't be anything evil. Everything happens as it's supposed to happen. How would... How would Marcus Aurelius, you know... uh a leader who certainly went into war many times, how would he explain that that's not evil? Well, I guess to that extent, his response to that evil, whatever it is, cannot be evil either. So that's no, kind of convenient. Certainly. Yeah, yeah. But I'd say what I like through this is that revenge would not be prescribed, right? If someone does something, you and I, we don't agree with, you know, the principle of revenge. If you think everything's just kind of happening, I mean, you retributing for, for something, aka not, not stopping further doing of an evil, but specifically returning an evil to someone who did it wouldn't be prescribed under Marcus Aurelius, right? You, someone cuts you off in traffic, you catch up to them and flip them off. You I mean, kind of did nothing, right? Well, one of the points we had is the best revenge is to not be that way. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that. Yeah, and yeah. that's specifically the quote. The entire quote is... <laughs> I, think, I think it's, the best revenge is to not be that. That, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the quote. So good. And uh, it is. Yeah, it is. I think the most, the, the very thing that usually hurts people and makes them want to take revenge is based 
not on the action necessarily, but on the person's reaction, right? When a bully bullies, they don't get the pleasure from saying, haha, you're fat. They get the pleasure of the embarrassment of the other person. And as soon as you <laughs> become stoic, the, the very thing that the wrongdoer, so-called, wants to achieve goes away. And in that sense, even revenge wouldn't even be like if even if you accepted that revenge is something you should do, it wouldn't be even be um, justified because they technically didn't do anything wrong because it didn't hurt you, right? Yeah, yeah. I think I don't know for more extreme cases where it's like revenge for the murder of my brother or something, but for for more banal cases, I think a lot of acts of aggression, and this has to do with my in inborn assumption that people are are basically good. I think a lot of evil acts people do onto each other like bullying or something is motivated by you know them themselves being hurt and um evil coming from somewhere some pain you know hurting them so much that they have to find ways to work through it and their way is like oh if i if i suffer then this person's going to suffer too and you don't give them that satisfaction right you get bullied and you say w watch me receive this pain you're dealing on to me and become better than you could ever without being evil at all. And I think that that shows that evil doesn't have to be uh, perpetrated, you know, in a, in a cycle. And it also shows that good wins. Anyway, this got very philosophical. Yeah, whoops. but I also, whoops, that's not the intention. <laughs> but I, I also think his views on this are very extreme, right? We, we made a post about kind of this mentality of it's only your perception of events that can affect you not the events themselves but nowadays certainly if someone steals something from you uh, we would say well okay well it's not like an insult it's very different so Marcus Aurelius stuff wouldn't apply but I'm sure he would say well no you're still perceiving the loss of that stuff as something personal as something to be vengeful for as something blah 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 but in reality that thing was never yours because yours doesn't exist. Everything is changeable. You acquired that thing and then you lost it under the same principles of changeable things. And I, I'm pretty sure it would extend to the death of a close one. Like, he, he wouldn't care. Well, theoretically. I'm not sure that's true. I don't know if we can extend to, like, the politics of Marcus Aurelius, this thing, these yeah, things, but, but... Yeah, but... And again, he, he was a leader, so certainly along that path something had to be sacrificed or he had to lose something as well and maybe he even developed that perception despite that sure but i mean if he was a leader you know society couldn't be held together without laws and the laws is that murder is illegal and you know you have some retribution for, well, the, for the laws only affect you if you choose to be affected by them okay let's <laughs> let's move on let's move on to yeah maybe let's do two more uh, let's do five one i want to read five one because it's very good it, it's it's very philosophical and you know i don't know allegorical metaphorical at dawn when you have trouble getting out of bed tell yourself i have to go to work as a human being what do i have to complain of if i'm doing if i'm going to do what i was born for the things i was brought into the world to do or is this what i was created for to huddle under the blankets and stay warm. But it's nicer here. So you were born to feel nice? Instead of doing things and experiencing them? Don't you see the plants, the birds, the ants and spiders and bees going about their individual tasks? 
putting the world in order as best they can, and you're not willing to do your job as a human being, why aren't you running out to do what your nature demands? But we have to sleep sometimes. Agreed. But nature set a limit on that, as it did on eating and drinking. And you're over the limit. You've had more than enough of that, but not of working. There, you're still below your quota. You don't love yourself enough, or you'd love your nature too, and what it demands of you. People who love what they do wear themselves down doing it. They even forget to wash or eat. Do you have less respect for your own nature than the engraver does for engraving, the dancer for the dance, the miser for money, or the social climber for status? When they're really possessed by what they do, they'd rather stop eating and sleeping than give up practicing their arts. Is helping others less valuable to you? Not worth your effort? So good, but I also think this is one of the most popular quotes that was popularized by those stoic channels on, Probably, on yeah. YouTube. And my problem with it with it is there's a precedent to make here that, uh, you know, a cool, stoic, aspiring 16-year-old kid isn't yet qualified to make. And he kind of goes, Marcus Aurelius kind of goes, Aurelius 5.1 kind of goes into this by saying, look at the bees, right? They're, they don't question if they should work, they just do it. But the, 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 the prerequisite, I would say, is to understand that humans are part of nature. And I think that must be internalized very deeply to understand that we're not... E we're neither above nor below nature. We're not dominating any anything. We're living with it. We, to use Buddhist terminology, we arise mutually, right? Alan Watts says, you never see flowers where there aren't bees and you never see bees where there aren't, fl aren't flowers. Although you see them as two separate organisms, they're the same thing. They arise mutually because that's one existing without, without the other is impossible. And it's the same thing. We think, oh, we dominate nature, we blah, blah, blah. but we, you know, we eat animals, we still get hunted by animals, we still depend on the quality of the soil. If the earth exploded, we wouldn't exist anymore. We're, we are nature. And in that sense, comparison to bees makes more sense because it evokes something more, right? Right now, we're just like, Oh, bees are the annoying things that sting me. I'm an American. I will chase the American dream. It seems as though I'm opposed to America, but I love America. But you know what I'm saying? I'm what I'm using introverts term, in America. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hate introverts in America. But no, <laughs> what I mean specifically is just like the western vision of it because I'm sure in Asia Buddhism has held back on that. And I'm sure we're going to get to a study of happiness in eastern countries, but they're even more happy because of it, because of the more communal living, but whatever. And that's what you have to do. You have to realize before even re reading this quote that we're not special. It just so happened that an alignment of molecules... It feels like I don't even know what I'm saying as a scientist, but yeah. An alignment of atoms made it so we developed reason. And that's our biggest blessing and our worst curse, right? Because we now think we're special. But there's a way to use that where you can accomp accomplish the most by dropping that ego of thinking you're special and actually viewing the world like this and you'll accomplish much more, right? Imagine working like a bee, flying around all day in the search of, you know, serving the queen with the 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 best pollen there is. Not how it works, but you know what, you know what I'm saying? I, I think this is like a very simple summary of what you should do in your life, you know? He says, you know, follow your nature. And then your the bad side of your rationality could 
try to rationalize everything and be like, oh, but what is my nature? Um, you know, bees clearly do this, 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 but they could be doing more. I could be doing this, this, this. I have many options. I can do whatever. You just have to stop thinking, like get up out of bed and do your work, whatever your work is. I, I don't know. I feel, I feel like that brings a feeling of accomplishment and you don't have to think that much about, oh, what, what my purpose is in life. I think taking on responsibility and doing your job brings you that sense of accomplishment see see the problem is for me here again again this, this is this is a rich quote but it, it misses so much because well again nothing against marcus aurelius by the way again this, these were his personal notes he never intended yeah them to he, be he missed nothing because he knew all of this setup in his mind before exactly that's the thing so it's not their fault it's not his fault it's the fault of the person people who are popularizing it and people and well. he says here was this what i was created for to huddle under the blankets and stay warm and the thing is well, yeah, when you when you look at his like nature argument, well, it is true that in nature we are programmed to feel good when we do such a thing. We are programmed to feel as though hedonistic activities bring us pleasure. So how could that not be living in accordance with nature to just stay under the blankets because it feels good because nature intended me to do so? And that's very hard, and that's when you have to understand that if you look at anything else on Earth or even the history of humans, you are standing in this spot because the bee was flying around all day, finding the best pollen, uh, you know, pollinating those flowers, and then the flowers grew, and then it made rich soils, and then the farmer worked all day to retrieve blah, 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 and that farmer is your grandfather's grandfather, and blah, blah, blah. Like, you are here because of that, and this is specifically the society of victims, where the mere option of not doing these things is what causes the reflection go back a hundred years it's not for 99 percent of people it's not even an option to stay under the blankets nowadays it is nowadays uh you know we probably have a life as luxurious as an emperor had exactly, exactly. at the time and he's still commenting on this i mean i'm sure this is observed behavior this is yeah yeah that, that's a very good point he had the option of you know what today I got the riches. I got the the power. I don't have to do anything. Whereas his people were probably dying from the flu because right, right. The, the the other people in his Marcus Aurelius is us. Yeah, I feel like yeah, <laughs> but uh, no, no. But that's that's yeah, the yeah. thing, right? Those people didn't even have the luxury of having that reflection, and this is why it's so powerful today. Because suddenly we're living like these emperors, right? We have that couch. We can just come back from work and get free entertainment infused into our brains through netflix those people man like 16 hours a day retrieving potatoes and that's what it is and you don't even have time for philosophy now we have time for philosophy. retrieving potatoes yeah I, th I think we can end no yeah unless sure. you have a favorite one, I, I i have no i have just one more thing about yeah there's a lot of quotes we didn't discuss we we won't have time but i i just got hyped up for virtue ethics once again uh virtue ethics is an ethics, uh, a conception of morality that focuses on good traits within someone, the trait of, you know, courage and honor and dutifulness, as opposed to other ethics like consequentialism or deontology that focus on actions and what specific actions are good or bad. And from that, you can infer how you should live. But Marcus Aurelius focuses on, you know, you have to do your job. You have to wake up in the morning. You have to be kind. You have to, to, to do all these things. And I think virtue ethics... I don't know. It just it's just more inspiring than than ethics of of you know that are about actions.
Right, right. It's like, uh, oh, what would she do? What's your intuition about this trolley problem? It's like, no, no, no. Just be a courageous person right now. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Exude courage. It doesn't matter who you kill. <laughs> That's a good meme. No, Exude I actually, courage. I, I, I actually like it. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, I did forget. I did lose my way in all these uh, Kantians things around, along the years. And that's what they get you started with. That's how you start philosophy, right? Yeah. The intro to yeah. philosophy is, hey guys, welcome to virtue ethics. Here's how you think about things. Or Not virtue ethics. No, they, they do get you started on consequentialism, don't they? For me, it was even before that. Yeah, yeah. The way I started philosophy was on the virtue ethics. I had a class in Ar Ar Aristotle before a that. Anyway, I, I think... <laughs> There is a way of thinking too much about ethics where you're thinking about the actions and there's endless debates to have about if specific actions are, are, are good or not. But more generally in life, I think it's good to just live by guidelines. You should not be lazy. Get out of bed, do your job. If you go into overanalyzing some of these things, you forget about the, fa the fact that you should not be lazy, you should be courageous, you should be dutiful and, and, and all these things, which should really be the focus for some people. Including me, you know, I I, I like I like the format. Yeah, I, I really like the format. Yeah, I, I thought the opening segment was going to be fifteen minutes, but whatever. Yeah. So, I don't think I think it's too much of a you know staple of the show. We can't drop the figured it out rating. But what can it mean? I think it's about how practical did we make because the, the specific thing we wanted to do is discuss the philosophy itself and then have a segment on the practicality of it. But we also puts the practicality part into the discussion because that that's just how stoicism works maybe for the next one we're going to do specifically what i said because we need we we can't forget to do the practical part so my thing is how well did we adapt the whatever philosophical piece we chose to modern life that's that that can be the new figured it out rating and i, I mean i'd say not nine eight something like that yeah i'll, I'll go with eight too yeah all right. I think it was more like of a just an interesting conversation on meditations. Yeah, we're gonna get more complex, we, right? We're gonna get into Hobbes and stuff like that. Surely. <laughs> and and we didn't have time either to do a dedicated segment, but I'm happy with it. We integrated it. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Thanks a lot for listening. Go to thinkingbros.com for my blog, my highly requested blog. It's still coming out, guys. It's still coming out. No worry. Um and we get a lot of questions actually we'll get to all of them and contact us at thinkingbros at gmail.com if you want uh, to send a little feedback about the episode thank you thank you we'll see you next week see ya